Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag. Ah, it's nice to dream about cheese for a bit. Tillamook cheddar, extraordinary dairy. Back with an all-new Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Vertel, and I'm already three-quarters of the way down my iced coffee, so you're going to get the electrified performance today. And I'm Quinta Brunson. Um, <laughs> guest host no, you're not. Again. <laughs> <laughs> Another guest host. <laughs> back, back, beach. What's up? Missed y'all. Let's get dirty. How's Miami? How's Miami, Miami is Miami-ing. I haven't got to experience any of it because, again, we've been shooting this pilot. So I've been living in this hotel. But it's okay because it feels like I'm in another episode of White Lotus. Mm. That's ex- it's enjoyable to me. It's quite enjoyable. You should be complaining to, like, a host or somebody at a front desk all the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. And j- Why don't I have the pineapple suite? Huh? Precisely. <laughs> mm. Sometimes I'll be sitting on my bed and I'll look out the balcony and a palm tree will like slowly move and swing and I think it's a man and I buck at it and try to fight it and then I realize it's nature. <laughs> <laughs> it's just me going crazy in this room. Mm. So you don't even know if journalistically the Will Smith song Miami is accurate. You haven't been able to investigate. Uh, I that. haven't been able. I haven't been able to experience. I haven't. I have been mm. watching. A lot of Will Smith content while I'm in this room, though. I didn't realize how large he was on social media until this week. Mm. I'm behind. <laughs> I will say that you probably at least know that the heat is on in Miami. You mean basketball, baby, or the temperature? <laughs> what are you talking about? The temperature. <laughs> oh, yes. It is very, very hot, but it is humid, which is a type of heat I enjoy. It's moisturizing. My hair has never been okay. better. My skin has never been better. Oh. Um, but yes, outside is limited to me opening my balcony doors. All right. See, I much prefer a Palm Springs situation with a dry heat where it's just me mm. and 67-year-old guys in tiny shorts at a gym. Flaking away. With, <laughs> yeah, with wild calves. Yeah. <laughs> That's why your lips always chat. I, Leave okay. Lewis alone. I don't. You know very well I don't have lips. Moving on. <laughs> don't let Ira do this to you. Speaking of um, what you said earlier, Lewis, iced coffee. I have an iced coffee delivery coming during the recording. So, oh, glamorous oh. and unprofessional. Good for you. I can't wait to see you shuffle away for your your energy. I'm drinking coffee out of like a whiskey glass. Like drinking, it looks appears to be mm. like a neat coffee drink with whiskey it's it's not there's no whiskey in it i promise for now yeah you're wagging that glass at us like you're humphrey bogart i'm actually intimidated <laughs> <laughs> sam sam <laughs> play it again play, play that one <laughs> you can blame uber eats for my lack of professionalism which they are chaotic i just started using uber eats because they're the only delivery service that delivers Starbucks. Oh, girl. Oh, right. I did know that. Once upon a time, I used to get mm-hmm. Starbucks delivered to me that way. Can I just say something about Uber? Okay. The, two days ago, I tweeted about how an Uber driver was playing Anita Baker's Sweet Love in his car, and I felt like Attack. me and my longtime lover were in a bubble bath together. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, really nervous-making. Mm-hmm. And then Uber responded with, um, a nice tip and a smile would be appreciated. And I wanted to be like, you're telling me how to treat your workers right now? <laughs> <laughs> 
I was like, I'm not going to start this on social media, but uh, side eye, up eye, down eye. Yeah. They're like, we don't do it. So somebody has to. Please. This is a, this is a request. Pay Please. them. Somebody in the car should do something nice. <laughs> Anyway, let's get back to the bubble bath Lewis was talking about, because this is our sex episode. Mm, yes. First of all, every episode's a sex episode. You just are not paying attention, okay? Every episode <laughs> is about sex. That is fair. Freud jumping out. Uh, this time, we will be discussing OnlyFans and sex, because the girls are mad, and... The girls are losing access. Mm. And suddenly everybody I knew recently was getting an OnlyFans. So I kind of thought it was just going to keep accelerating. So anyway, we can get into that. Mm. And also, we are exploring our blind spots again. This time with erotic thrillers. This episode is sexy. Let's rename this section our G-spots. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> G-spots. <laughs> our C-spots. Whatever we want. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sex episode, baby. Yes. And I also talked to a woman with a very sultry voice. Uh, so it's on theme. Journey Spolett joins mm. us this week. Did the conversation ever move off of Eve's bio? <laughs> you know what? It did, actually. Uh, because you know I had to ask her about Alfre Woodard's sister soiree. Oh. Mm. Mm-hmm. Alfre yeah, Woodard yeah. with her million Emmy nominations. Look them up. It's crazy. Truly. Uh, we talk about that. She discusses like learning improv from Robin Williams. It's a very, very fun interview. So. God, I guess when you've been training since you were two weeks old, <laughs> there's a lot of experience there. Yeah, I'm picturing her right. at six at the Groundlings or something. I'm <laughs> sure that wasn't the case. but Yes, in Jack with Robin Williams, Jennifer Lopez, mm-hmm. and being directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Not everybody has that. It's not easy to get. <laughs> that is truly. Francis Ford Coppola's career post-Apocalypse Now, just look at all those movies in a row. It is Daffy. <laughs> like the Cotton Club, that I get. <laughs> Everything else is like, what the fuck? Yeah. My favorite Lewis <sighs> word, Daffy. And it's not like comma duck. Daffy. <laughs> that, the Looney Tune I always most related to. If I was at Six Flags, I'd be buying a Daffy hat. Mm. Also, Aida, you did not fully prepare me for how demented Space Jam 2 was. Oh, I considered leaving multiple times. I, I, I did. I almost did. I watched it. Um, in my home, um, like a couple weeks ago, and gr- I know that in the original Space Jam they go into Toon World, etc. I didn't know that because Warner Brothers owns so many different properties now that in Space Jam Two they went into an algorithm where they saw not just Toon World but Game of Thrones, yeah, characters no. from it. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Ca- Humphrey Bogart from Casablanca <laughs> is in Space Jam 2. It is chaotic and it is offensive. Austin Powers is in it. It's no, it's too much. I really have to I'm I'm clutching my heart. I, A lot truly, has happened since the first Space Jam. <laughs> like I'm watching the news. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have actually truly never been more offended by a film. I was truly disgusted mm. by the grave robbing. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to watch this, unfortunately. You're- you do. It's a cultural touch point, Lewis. You need to be aware. Jesus. <sighs> anyway, let's get this show started. We'll be right back. Hey. 
Take Line host Jason Concepcion is coming at you with the brand new podcast, X-Ray Vision. How many damn podcasts does Jason have? That First of all, he has too much time and too much knowledge, so probably 50 more are coming. <laughs> That's wild. Each week, he'll deep dive into your favorite films, TV shows, and comics, including Shang-Chi, The Legend of the Ten Rings, and Why the Last Man. The X-Ray Vision trailer is out right now, and the first episode drops on August 30th. So subscribe to X-Ray Vision on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, OnlyFans announced that it has betrayed the content creators that are responsible for its success. After some squeamishness from credit card companies and potential investors, the platform has announced that beginning in October, sexually explicit content will no longer be allowed on its platform. Girl, <laughs> the girls were upset. Yeah. We asked for an app. We didn't ask for y'all to shut the whole thing down, okay? Fuck y'all. Fuck <laughs> all y'all. It is mind-blowing. I mean, I, I just, I didn't know there was any other option for content on there. I, I know, like, certain celebrities have them and stuff, but for the most part, it's, what I've seen is you pay a subscription service, and then within the subscription, there's, like, available options for whatever, porn videos, et cetera, that sometimes yeah. cost more money. So it's like a pretty easy way for certain content creators to make a bunch of money off individual people as well as en masse. So I'm really mm. blown away. I think even the celebrities that were on there weren't giving necessarily pornographic content, but were giving sexy time. Yeah. You know, like a Jordan Woods mm. was giving sexy time. Cardi B was, I don't know. I don't know what she was doing. Tyga, I think, is on there as well. Like a lot of celebrities had just suggestive content mm. on there. Yeah, Dorinda Medley for Real Housewives of New York has what <laughs> I've never watched it. You are the only fan. <laughs> <laughs> you are the only fan. But I also want to say that I feel that like, they initially conceived it as, you know, like people having cooking channels, you know, like private access that you're paying for that you just get as a fan, et cetera, right? That was what it was for. Um, but, you know, once the Porn Girls found it, then it really started taking off, you know, a amassed a base of more than 130 million users, largely for adult-oriented subscription fan pages, uh, which now they're going to be banning. And it's like, baby, I don't log on to OnlyFans to see, you know, Selena plus Chef. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you All right. I'm not going to see Cooking with Paris, Okay. I want to see somebody fuck it. It's like they're backing up and saying, no, you don't understand where Quibi, which, as you know, is a financially what? solvent idea. <laughs> well, it's just also what's stupid about it is, you know how difficult it is to build a brand, to build a real brand, mm -hmm. and now y'all have one? The sex work girls gave that to you, and you want to, what, be Patreon or Twitch or YouTube? We already have those things. Like, yeah. figure out what, you have no lane now. It's You're not going to be able to double back and be OnlyFans, the just subscription-based site that's not sexy. Boo. Remember when Tumblr did this? What? Excuse me. What's that? What's that site? <laughs> right? What? Tumblr, which had Don't remember free porn on it, um, <laughs> crashed and burned when they removed all that. Now it's like, I don't even use Tumblr. I don't even hear it. No one talks about it. never heard of it. Take a long cigar drag. I've never heard of that name. What was their plan? They were like, we're going to be the Atlantic now. Like, what was the upshot? <laughs> I feel like there will be other options for these huge creators and stuff but man it really does stunt some progress i mean mm -hmm. viewers have to find them again 
pay attention again yeah. resubscribe i need a better option though because the other site that people use is called like just for fans mm-hmm. and i don't Ooh. know if anyone has ever tried to use that it never loads. Oh. <laughs> Even OnlyFans, like the web, it looked like a MySpace page. Like the HTML design was like a first year coder made it. It really needed help. So I don't. I hope that they can get some credit card investors to help them with a website is what I really want because <laughs> it was a mess. It was truly a mess. The important conversation here, though, and I, I feel sorry for the sex workers that were on that site, but also that they are the women and people who know how to innovate the most when shit hits the fan because the platform that they can use to get their work out is always being taken away from them. Like they're always having to innovate mm. and find new places to go. So hopefully the girls can figure out how to continue getting revenue in a different way quite soon. Right. Women and um, gay men who are sex workers um, tend to be like um, they're in the matrix um, they are constantly moving and avoiding Agent Smith. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Be it the streets, the websites. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They will find a new platform. And ostensibly, you can put, you know, like um, sexually explicit videos, et cetera, on Twitter. But this was supposed to be for payment. Yeah. It's particularly egregious to do this, like, as we're still sort of reeling from a global pandemic, because I feel like a lot of people were able to pay their bills and, you know, live during the pandemic by making uh, OnlyFans content. And now it's just sort of being stripped away from them. You know, like people got rent to pay. No, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like the ultimate pandemic money machine. Truly a money machine, though, because I do want to point out that they really um, found a way to get money out of people on OnlyFans because you would subscribe to somebody and then... The twist would be, oh, no, now you're just paying for a subscription. If you would actually like to see my videos, that will be $9 per video. <laughs> also, by, making bank. By the way, that, and, and that's like one of the easier subscriptions. I mean, you'll, you'll sign up for an OnlyFans, and within it, the videos inside are like $50 or something. And there's no mm-hmm. like preview still even, so you don't even know what you're getting. Yeah, as much yeah. as I love the sex work girls, I also felt robbed on multiple occasions. <laughs> I <was in> <laughs> And there was we no, did it. No we just needed some regulation. Some yes. regulation. Okay? That was always the thing that upset me. The like, mm-hmm. all right, if I'm going to fork over $12 because $12. it's, um, you know, even more, you know, because it's like, it's you're usually on, it's like 3 a.m. You're just home from the bar. It's like, who cares? And then you press, and then it's like, what did I just pay for? Are you, <laughs> are you reading Foucault naked? Is this what I'm getting? <laughs> I like how twelve dollars. We're talking Jersey Mike's money right now. Yeah, so, baby. Whole hoagie, whole hoagie. not Jersey Mike's. Are you a Jersey Mike's fan? Yeah, on occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. You know what? I'm still a Subway girl. Oh, we know Ira. I think we talked about this recently. Baby, I had Subway yesterday. Okay, you're the BMT, right? You're the Italian mm. sandwich. Have we talked about this? Yeah, some of the girls are getting BBLs. I'm getting BMTs. <laughs> okay, you. okay. I hate you. It's going to work. Either way, that ass going to grow. Either way. <laughs> <laughs> I do miss, I haven't had Subway in a while. I do miss the double chocolate chip cookies. Like that specific color of a brown cookie, you know it's going to mm. be good. Anyway, we can get back to the important mm. topic. We had this conversation 30 days ago. <laughs> That's how deranged we are. Keep it is a cycle. We cycle through the same oh, yeah. topics 
And you know what? They'll take it. <laughs> the topics are still important to me. I believe this is a version right. of authenticity. You're, right. You're only renewing your vigor for your love yeah. of the mm. macadamia nut cookies, which I, I want. Mm. But I was going to say, I, I mentioned this earlier, but like my thing with OnlyFans is at least here in L.A. in, you know, Gaytopia or whatever, it really felt like every third person had one of these. I just mm-hmm. felt like mm-hmm. for, for this to be what stops OnlyFans, I'm shocked that they think it can be anything else because, for example, if I could think of something to offer on OnlyFans in a non-nude, you know, gay nerd way, I would do it, but it would feel so stupid and not money-making. I don't know. Yeah. Just like YouTube exists, etc. Mm-hmm. I'd pay for some shirtless trivia from Lewis. Oh, wow. Okay, but you see, you do believe there <laughs> should be a naughty element. Let us see that ribcage. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Let us see that ribcage. Naughty <laughs> trivia. Exclusively naughty trivia. You, you want some sharp scapula action? You come on over to me. <laughs> Um, I will also say that more so than OnlyFans betraying its uh, content creators, a lot of the girls came out with grimy opinions when this was happening. A lot of people had to get their jokes off about sex workers um, needing to get a job, etc. And it's like, wherever they do find a new job, you're going to be paying them. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just the, the disconnect from people, you know, like, using and watching explicit content and then wanting to like drag people and act above it, you know, and like literally mocking people for um not being able to know where their um income's gonna be coming. You know? It's yeah. uh I found it really gross. Yeah, it it's disgusting. It's usually like the Kevin Samuels army of black men who just got fresh off of putting in their credit card information for an OnlyFans account that came online to to discredit these women for the way they make money. Mm-hmm. Um you know what this was really exciting about this though, because this isn't gonna happen until October that I really only see this as a way to accelerate maybe the cryptocurrency market because somebody going to have to innovate. Because if the reason that OnlyFans is pulling the pornographic content is because they don't want to lose their investors and they don't want to lose money from credit card companies, it seems like the next logical progression is to be like, okay, how else can we pay for this content or how else can we get money coming in? And look, the NFT girls are ready. Sell pussy NFTs, girl. Let's go. <laughs> it's time. It's also wild to me because people use their credit cards for shit like this all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. They don't stop credit cards being used at like strip clubs. You know, uh, you can subscribe to a regular porn site using your credit card, you know? And part of the trepidation is these credit card companies are worried that like child pornographic content will appear on OnlyFans, when it actually turns out there's like 100 times the child porn content on Facebook than there is uh, <laughs> things like OnlyFans. There's only been a handful so that have been taken down for that purpose. Yeah, I know. It's, it's horrifying. Damn. What is Aunt Christy sharing on her Facebook? I know. A career change. <laughs> <laughs> this oh, child goodness. porn tells you why the vaccine will kill us. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. And just the hugest wanted poster font. <laughs> I don't know how OnlyFans is going to make money at now because they they last year were what like a three billion dollar company, and their first year they were like half a million or something like that. Now I can just see it's going to entirely plummet if the majority of their money, fifty to sixty percent of it, was coming from paid subscriptions mm-hmm. for the hot girls and the and the hot gays. It will, of course, be the innovators who will find a way to make money. Uh, I do want to point out that when Lewis was like, you know, it seemed like every third girl had a mm. OnlyFans account. I would say that was one thing I had a problem with because let me tell you. A lot of lazy gay men. Oh, totally. We're starting OnlyFans, and it's like, 
baby, I know content creators who, like, we personally know, like, a few content creators who, like, are actually making, like, videos, making, like, shooting with other performers, like, mm-hmm. flying across the U.S. and stuff to record things, like, putting in work. Yeah. There were a lot of lazy faggots who would just be like, oh, here's a little, like, selfie of me naked in my mirror or something. It's like, you're not working. Girl, get that I'm off. I'm not paying you shit for that. Get that off no. the internet. <laughs> I have to applaud the the versatility of, like, top-tier performers' versatility, LOL. But just the <laughs> sheer amount of content you need, the planning top. you need to do, even, like, the captions you have to write to sell it as something new. I mean, just... The captions are so funny to me, mm-hmm. by the way. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I like the comedy of OnlyFans captions would always crack me up it would always be like i've always been so excited to meet kyle like the first time we met two years ago in vegas the chemistry was electric this time when i was in denver we had to hook up and it was the hottest time ever you'll definitely enjoy it releasing in three parts wow first of all for you to recite that like slam poetry first of all i appreciate it and then secondly that is exactly the tone, like that, the, the the whimsy, the wild whimsy of this sexual life. <laughs> the wild whimsy would meanwhile, I did hook up with a person who was an OnlyFans uh, creator once, and I saw like a whiteboard in their home, and there's no whimsy in this planning. It had like different names of other performers I knew, and like dates and cities, and it looked like you know they were um, solving a mystery in an after the Christie novel. <laughs> I was like, this is this is work. I've got to be okay. in Istanbul by three. Yeah. <laughs> this is charts. This is math. This is planning. I can't even do that shit. When I'm planning a trip, it's like, oh, I guess I should book this hotel. I'm supposed to leave tomorrow. <laughs> no, right. Where I fall is where I fall. <laughs> One saving grace of the whole situation, though, is I feel like all the OnlyFans people that I followed, I followed them on Twitter first, saw their promoted content, mm-hmm. then went to their OnlyFans because there is no real avenue to find people on OnlyFans. Right. So the I can continue to follow those, and I don't follow them. I have them in a secret private list on Twitter <laughs> because I don't want to be seen or found out. But um, I will continue to support them on whatever site that they go to next that was a thing that if i hadn't been suspended from twitter uh i was probably eventually going to do just because if you follow enough gay men uh who work in porn on twitter you can never open that site in public not in oh, public please. oh my god no <laughs> ever public. it's like i'm not looking for public. a trending topic and then here's someone fucking someone uh at uh 11 a.m while I'm in line um, for lunch. No, I mean, before I knew you could mute people on Twitter a few years ago, I would have to unfollow these people I know because I'd be at work reading whatever, <laughs> the disastrous news of the day, and then beneath that, you are getting absolutely railed, and I'm like, well, I'm going to be fucking fired. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, when we're back, I'm going to ask Journey Smollett what she thinks about OnlyFans. I'm kidding. <laughs> Uh, I'll be right back with Journey Smollett. Keep It is brought to you by Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. If you're really good at it, that is. I've actually met several really good friends through Hinge. I've used it, I can't believe this, over a decade now. Woof, what a life I've had. Well, you know what they've added within a decade of us being on Hinge is their new LGBTQIA plus prompts, which are designed to help queer daters better connect based on similarities, interests, and compatibility. Hinge prompts helps you show off your full personality and connect with someone who appreciates you. Plus, 
These prompts were created in collaboration with GLAAD, so they are by the people, for the people. Some of the prompts are, the first time I knew I was gay was, mm, I was literally in the act of being gay, like hooking up with somebody when I admitted it. (laughs) Denial is strong and hard in the Catholic Midwest. Mine was Tom Cruise's Vanity Fair cover. The shirtless one. You just turned to an imaginary camera and said, I'm gay. Yeah. Or broke the fourth wall. (laughs) You're like Fleabag. Other prompts include, I feel proudest of who I am when. It feels affirming when others, blank. I connect to my community by. I wish I could tell the younger version of myself. Can I just say, whenever I watch that in a drag race semifinal, when they're like, if I could talk to my younger self, I would say, I would be like, girl, get tighter clothes. I mean, what's going on with what you're wearing? You look like you're in the X Games. Other prompts include, my chosen family is the best at, and gender euphoria looks like. Download Hinge and show off your full self using their LGBTQIA plus prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. Our guest today is a Hollywood staple, a Critics' Choice Award winner at 11 for playing Eve in Eve's Bayou. She is here today on a path to an Emmy for HBO's Lovecraft Country. Please welcome Journey Smollett. Oh, wow. What a lovely introduction. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you, Emmy nominee? How does that feel? I am still pinching myself. It really hasn't like set in yet, you know? Like every time someone says it to me, it's still like, wait, huh? Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's pretty cool. It's pretty, pretty cool. I know. Especially for a show like Lovecraft Country, which a lot of people were talking about it every week. It was the show to talk about online. Yeah, no, I mean, I wasn't prepared for the like the tidal wave uh, response from <laughs> from folks. I mean... And it wasn't just online. It was like my phone every Sunday just being blown up by friends or family just being, you know, with their jaws open every week, you know, (laughs) unable to reconcile what they had just seen and (laughs) needing to know what happens. And it's for sure undeniable, which I feel so Mm -hmm. fortunate to be a part of. I know because you've been, you know, like I was saying earlier in the industry for quite some time is this maybe aside from um being in like birds of prey is this like one of the biggest things that you feel like people have just been like everywhere you go people are talking about this constantly yeah i mean last year was quite the year now that you say that like yeah birds of prey and lovecraft country both were um quite special and vastly different projects and vastly different characters honestly required different things from me and my instrument. But yeah, I mean, I do think Lovecraft Country, it's just incredibly meaningful um, to me for so many reasons. And Letty, I mean, what a dream character, you know, what what a dream Mm -hmm. role to be able to embody and bring to life. And honestly, one of the most profound things about this experience is just feeling from the community, like, oh, this was one for the culture, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Speaking of, in an interview, you were talking about how Alfre Woodard is a mentor of yours. And speaking of for the culture, I need to ask you about her annual sister soiree. Does that still go on? And explain what it is to everyone here. 
Listen, I don't know how much I can tell you about it. <laughs> yeah, don't tell me all the secrets. <laughs> I can't give you all of the tea. Um, <laughs> give me the address. Uh, <laughs> I'll show up there. <laughs> oh, it's such a beautiful gathering that she's had for quite a long time now. We did not, unfortunately, have it this year because obviously the pandemic multiple mm-hmm. pandemics we are fighting. It has grown into something that has been such an incredible sisterhood in which so many of us don't get a chance to see each other. Like we're all across the world, across the globe. And it really is something in which we get to just come together and gather and love on each other and say, mm-hmm. sister, woman, friend, listen, I saw what you did and I'm, you know, so inspired or, you know, it, it's just like a love fest. You know, and yes, some mm-hmm. tea is spilled, truly. <laughs> <laughs> as always, as always. Now, I love the idea, you know, of people working together within the industry, you know, like having an event to um, just commemorate each other for their work and be like, we saw you in this. We know that, like, this work is stellar. You should be nominated for this. And I'm letting you know that. Well, and I think sometimes there's a misconception that there's such a spirit of competition or that as actresses, we have to be divisive or competitive or, or something like that. And that's just a lie. I am so inspired by my peers and I'm so inspired by the work of other women. It motivates me and pushes me and fuels me. And so it's been a much needed ground for us to just be able to do that, to just kind of come home, you know, and mm-hmm. share our struggles and our triumphs. I love Alfrey. I've known Alfrey since I was 12 years old through an organization called Artists for New South Africa that I, once I turned 18, became like their youngest board member. And I was fortunate enough to grow up in this village of artists and activists. It just stimulated my DNA. You know, I come from activists, my mother, my father, that's how they met. But growing up in a community which I could watch an Alfre Woodard or Samuel L. Jackson or Blair Underwood or CCH Pounder navigate this industry and not compromise their art or their activism because both could mm-hmm. coexist at the same time has been quite informative for my own path. I truly, I call them my village because that is truly what they were. I mean, not even just that. Talking about getting, you know, that sort of um, camaraderie and, you know, be able to talk about um, the struggles uh, of being an actor um, with other people who are doing the same thing. Um, I have to imagine it was like that growing up in a family of actors. Uh, I mean, starting out on a television show with Mm -hmm. all of your siblings. Mm -hmm. um, How does that even happen? Uh, you really want to know how that it happened? Damn talented. <laughs> I mean, you you really want to know how it happened? My mother, my mother's a G. Like my mother is like old school hustler. Like I I know my children are talented, and I you know she had so much belief and vision. She's such a visionary, and I was on a show Full House when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and the producers, yeah, the producers <laughs> approached my mom about doing a spinoff. My character was pretty popular. And mm-hmm. my mom at the time had been, she just was being stretched so thin with all these kids, mm-hmm. you know, Jussie doing Mighty Ducks and 
JoJo doing this and Jazz doing this commercial and me doing that. And she always wanted to be with us. She was very, very mm-hmm. protective in that way. And so she just said to the agent, I'm not doing no more damn TV with these kids unless they're all in the same show. You tell those producers, <laughs> put all my kids in the same show. We all can be on the same set and then we'll do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. The agent went back and told them and the producer said, oh, there's more? Bring them all in. (laughs) My mom literally had us go in and meet with these producers, with the head of ABC. And she had us perform Public Enemy, Shut Up Down. I kid you not. (laughs) I mean, we're in the room with nothing but like a massive table of just white men, old white men. Mm -hmm. And we are rapping Shut Them Down by Public Enemy. That is my mother. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and that's how that's how that show happened. Yeah, I mean, and that show was on our own, which was only one season, unfortunately. But just imagining being on an ABC show with your whole family is just wild <laughs> to me. It was wild. No, we had so much fun. You don't even understand. We all were school <laughs> together. Which means we Mm -hmm. put our poor school teacher through hell. I mean, we loved her. We didn't put her through hell. (laughs) But our French teacher at the time, Colette, oh, rest in peace. Um, She was trying to teach us French. And I mean, we were asking her things like, I just remember us constantly trying to get her to cuss in French. (laughs) And she was just (laughs) this elegant woman who wore all these silk scarves every day and we try, here we are, these bad kids trying to get this woman to teach us cuss words that we could say in French. I mean, <laughs> we had a blast. We had a blast. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I also, one of your other earlier projects, Eve's Bayou, is, first of all, a classic, a favorite of mine. We are constantly talking about it on this podcast in general. You're the third person wow. that I'm going to be asking about um, who's been on it. We've had Casey um, on, we've had Megan on the show before, and now you. Do you still think about that movie every day? I think about it constantly. I think it is <laughs> truly one of my favorite movies. I remember after it came out, I think Roger Ebert was one of the people too who said that this film is best film of the year. Everyone should be talking about this film. And to be in something like that so young and really sort of have it feel like it's a defining moment in your career. What was it like being a part of that film? It's, uh, I was 10 years old. I mean, we started mm-hmm. shooting three days after I turned 10. My mind works weird in that way. I remember dates in that way. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, for without a doubt, it was a piece of art that had such an impact on me. And it's quite humbling to see how 20 years later, it's a piece that's still having an impact on folks. And, and yeah, I mean, I think... It's interesting because it's the consensus, you know, is that it's a classic and how humbling that is for me to be a part of something that's a classic. And I did it when I was 10. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. but I think honestly, it had such a profound impact on my instrument. And I think for sure is one of the main reasons why I'm still doing it to this day, because it was it was a piece in which I was able to understand for the first time, even at such a young age, what the craft is actually about. And I don't know that I would continue, I would be still doing it if I hadn't had such a profound experience like Eve's Bayou when I was such a young age. I mean, I 
I'm grateful to my mother because she was such a snob. She would not let me just do anything. And I think <laughs> because I wasn't like a child star, I was a kid who acted. Mm -hmm. It was at first a hobby, then it became a passion of mine, which is why I still do it. But being around such craftsmen and women like Casey and Samuel Jackson and Diane Carroll and Lynn Whitfield and Debbie Morgan had such an impact on me and raised my standard, you know, from then on. That's all I can say is that it just had a massive impact on my, not just my career, but literally on my instrument. Mm -hmm. Who are some other people you would say have really sort of influenced your career? You know, watching them work, um, I have to imagine, you know, um, being in The Great Debaters, you know, like being directed by Denzel Washington is something like that, that has just taught you so much about the industry. Masterclass. I mean, yeah, there are key projects that helped inform my training. I mean, I didn't go to school for this. You know, I've picked up tools from different folks. I mean, or a book or a, you know, oh, that works. Let me actually try that and put that in my pocket. You know, working with with D on Great Debaters and then being directed by him, which is a very unique experience. He did like, I mean, we kind of had a weeks of rehearsal before we even started shooting in which he literally had us in a basement. I mean, doing like actor exercises, you know, and there are things mm. that he taught us then that I still use to this day. I mean, I now journal and create really long biographies because of him. There's, you know, I still to this day hear him saying, trust your instincts, trust your instincts. How would you do it? Trust your instincts. Like he would constantly just ask me that, you know, when I felt stuck. It was such a learning experience for me. That experience, working with Angela Bassett, you know, and I did a small movie with her for Showtime when I was 14 years old. Working with Robin Williams and that man taught me how to improv when I was eight years old. On Jack. Yeah. On Jack. Yeah. Like yes. these, these really also unique. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola at eight. Who, who honestly, <laughs> it's so funny because Francis, I actually, I ended up walking up to him while we were shooting the film and asked him to be like my surrogate grandfather. And he and I kept in touch for so long. We used to be pen pals. <laughs> Literally. Like Aww. through throughout my teenage years, I would just email Francis once in a while, check it in and He'd give me some movies to watch or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think about how blessed I've been to have the mm -hmm. handprint of so many different incredible mm -hmm. artists on my instrument, you know. So that is two things I want to follow up on, though. One, what is, like, one film that, like, Francis told you to watch that you were, like, it really had an impact on you? You were, like, I would not have watched this without him recommending it to me. Do you remember any of them? Well, honestly, I was more so interested in talking to him about his films, mm -hmm. you know, analyzing different choices he made, or I, I still feel like The Godfather will go down in history as the greatest film of all time. That trilogy, first of all, mm -hmm. I mean, it's Godfather number two, but like the whole trilogy. I even love number three. Don't come for me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> he talked a lot about how, like, I remember specifically... I, I loved math. Like our conversations mm -hmm. would be so kind of cryptic when, when I think about it now. I loved math and I would talk to him about how much I loved like geometry and algebra. And he he kind of talked about how his brain just never worked like that. Like his brain could see the mm -hmm. whole the whole picture, but not like break it up into parts, you know, and, and how mm -hmm. as a filmmaker, he sees the whole film. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so strange to actually go back and think about the fact that I was, you know, pen pals with Francis McDonald <laughs> for a moment, you know. <laughs> but the cool thing is, is like, these people weren't gods for me, mm-hmm. which I think we sometimes do. We fall into this pattern of of looking up to folks in a way and giving them a God complex. And because I was so young and so naive and so not in the world of fame or anything like that, I didn't like worship these men and women. I could talk to them about whatever. I could call Sam Jackson, pick his brain about something or ask advice. When I went to do Birds of Prey, I called him and was like, so what's this... Like, how you approach this? Like, what's this world? These superhero movies. What's good? Yeah, like, what's good? (laughs) You know, like, does my approach really need to shift much? And all he told me, I mean, he told me a lot, but one of the things he said is, baby, just go and piss on your territory. You'll be good. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you know what, Sam? You're right. I just go Mm. piss on this territory Yeah, his, his, I mean, and th- what he's saying is like, just make it your own, you know, because the mm-hmm. character had been retconned so many times and it's, he was just encouraging mm-hmm. me to, again, trust your instincts and make it your own. Mm. Also, learning to improv from Robin Williams. What is that even like? One of the greatest actors of all time, I now know, but did not know that, obviously, when I was eight years mm-hmm. old. It just was about being incredibly present. Again, going back to your instincts, I think so much of the work that we do is is trying to shut out all the distractions and and truly just be present and focus. And that going into that meditative state is not what an eight year old was aware of, but what he was able to bring out of me of just saying the first thing that comes out of the top of your head, right? Like he kept just saying that, just say the first thing that comes to the top of your head, you know. And we we would go forever and ever and ever, just back and forth, and now I'm like, was it a little bit of Meisner? Like, you know, it's like he he was pulling from all these different techniques when I think about it. Um, and a lot of the scenes that are in the film with him, I don't have many scenes with him, but the few scenes I have in the film are all improv. Oh, wow. I mean, I think I had said something about his hairline being receding, but instead of saying receding, I said receiving. But I was eight. I didn't really know what it was. And they thought that was so funny. I think they kept it in the film. You know, so it's that sort of thing where you're just so uninhibited mm-hmm. and, and just free, you know. Well, I really think that you have been, you know, such an exceptional actress um, for Thank you. so long. Uh, and it's been so beautiful to see that sort of realized uh, in Lovecraft Country where you're doing truly so much at once. each episode is truly like a different project uh that you're taking on (laughs) i mean yes and no but the character for sure you know the writing of misha green the brain of matt ruff's Mm -hmm. book it definitely was a world that was such a fun playground to play in as an artist Mm -hmm. and the thing about misha this being the second project i worked with her on she just really is so hungry to unearth all the different layers of humanity. I mean, the beauty, the ugliness, the torture, the triumph, the love, the sensuality. I mean, that's what she's so hungry to explore as an artist, which I so appreciate. And she pushes you. I mean, sometimes I'd get those scripts and just be like, so how are you going to do this? Like, (laughs) so how? How? 
houseway. Like somebody explain this to me. And that beautiful challenge, that excitement, little bit of fear, you know, it just makes you stretch yourself. And Letty came to me at a time in my life where I was actually going through so much transition and questioning so many things. And there's such a theme in Lovecraft Country in which you, you are questioning what is real? What is reality? It's quite intentional to have the audio of James Baldwin mm -hmm. narrate our road trip. What is reality? Reality for this person over here. Folks ask me all the time. Sorry, I'm going on a tangent. But folks ask me all the time about Lovecraft Country feeling timely and it coming out last year and the uprising. And of course, you know, I'm just like, well, where y'all been? You know, like black folks, our reality has been this. It's not that Lovecraft Country is timely. It is that Lovecraft Country is truthful and honest. It's actually having the audacity to face the ugly truth of America, which is that since 1619, this has been our reality. And so, yeah, it's uh, quite a privilege to have been a part of something that is this special. Well, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's really been great being able to talk to you. You too. Thank you for the wonderful question. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Since OnlyFans is no longer in the business of getting us off, we've had to turn back to cinema. <laughs> Inspired by Rich Juzwiak's deep dive published on Jezebel recently, we spent the last week revisiting the era of the erotic thriller, and we jumped into a few of our blind spots. Mm. So, Erotic thriller, I just want to say, are two of my favorite words in the English language. It's so... A specific moment in time. I mean, I, I really think Fatal Attraction in the 80s happened, but really specifically an early 90s phenomenon mm -hmm. when every movie was like bright and gray and like Jeremy yes. Irons was in everything. Yeah. And men are slick and melodramatic. Dramatic men. That's like a, 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 we a weird quality missing from um, movies recently. I think my generation was so unfair that the only things we really got were like Fifty Shades of Grey. But beyond that, this us doing this segment is my new foray into erotic thrillers. And I'm going to come out this a changed woman. I already know. Mm -hmm. I already know. They are so much fun. It's like it's weird that I feel like I grew up on them. But it was like they were my grandmother's favorite films. So uh, there was always like, you know, like a VHS of like Jagged Edge oh, right yeah. next mm -hmm. to the TV. I had seen clips of it before, probably on TV, but I recently watched um, Single White Female really in its entirety for the first time because um, the new Netflix show that I'm working on, um, which is from um, Darren Starr, my soap king. Yes, sir. I'm in the writer's room with Don Roos, 
who wrote Single White Female. Oh, my God. Uh, also wrote How and exciting. directed The Opposite of Sex. Also love. Yes. Talking to him about that film, I was just like, it is so wild to think that we don't have those films anymore. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they're not even films that are made for um, streaming services. It would seem very appropriate to be making these kinds of thrillers for like a Netflix or something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. And they would be enjoyable. I feel like a renaissance is coming. Something I love about them too, and I just rewatched Body of Evidence for this assignment, so I'm thinking specifically about this movie, but it really coalesces things about like Hitchcock, like longing glances between like a male and a female character, like do I trust her, does she trust him, et cetera. Film noir, you know, the yes. femme fatale type characters. There's also, of course, the movie femme fatale with uh, Rebecca Romaine. And in the case of Basic Instinct, but a lot of these movies, the score is just hailing down on the movie. Like, you mm. can't not be wrapped up in the melodrama because it is hitting you with hard strings as he drives his uh, car around the you know, San Francisco Bay. So um, just mm. lots of different versions of pure thrill even when people aren't speaking or fucking, as the case may be. I think, too, and I know I always talk about Whiplash and how it was color-corrected so disgustingly that I had to turn it off. You hate Damien Chazelle. Uh-uh. I'm not fucking with him. I'm not fucking with him. But, but here's... Also, like, when we did this segment last time and I watched Death Becomes Her, it was very clear to me that Zemeckis was doing something so unique and that that movie was never going to get remade. And even though Cruel Intentions is, like, the 17th version of Dangerous Liaisons, I was watching it and feeling that exact same thing, which was that I've never seen anything like this. I don't see how this could get remade. And also that this is a tragedy. And even though it's an erotic thriller, this is one of the saddest stories I have ever seen. And the cast and the color correction and the settings all reflected that. It had this like dark, ominous feeling to it. So I was just so engaged. I was so engaged. And horny. Well, the thing about these films is that they were sort of like playing with, you know, the um, fears and anxieties that people had over sex in like the 80s and 90s. Like it's appropriate that like this Mm -hmm. boom sort of came after the AIDS epidemic too. And I feel like every erotic thriller like has an almost gay undertone in it in the sense that like in single white female obviously you know there's the lesbianism almost you know it's a very sappy mm. film but also there's a moment where um we go to like a sex club where you know it's like it looks very like the eagle like or like there's chains and whips and stuff and i feel like that element of sex was always present in these films you know body of evidence opens with like you know like the nipple clamps and stuff like that you know and i feel like maybe they are due for a renaissance because you know talking about only fans and all this shit you know, like people still have anxieties um and fears um mm-hmm. and like moral panic over sex and i think that the way to explore that is to dive into them the way that these films did and uh well so we've already sort of mentioned our blind spots a bit, but um, Lewis, you watched Basic Instinct. Yes, which I was just going to say, uh, when the last time I saw this, which was years and years ago, had to have been on like cable TV where things were edited out because as I was thinking back on what I knew about this movie, I realized I, I hadn't seen whatever the extremely controversial moments were. I couldn't like place them in my head outside of this the interrogation scene with... Sharon Stone, but something I had totally forgotten about Basic Instinct, which as you probably know, stars Michael Douglas, and Sharon Stone, and um, Jean Triplehorn as a character whose name is She Has Dark Hair. 
Uh, that's what she was doing in that movie. <laughs> but um, something I forgot is that there was lots of controversy from gay activists at the time because, as you said, Ira, there's like part of the uh, sinister nefariousness of the movie is that there's a queer element to Gene Triplehorn, there's a queer element to Sharon Stone, and in fact, the way they like undulate at the club in front of Michael Douglas, building the intrigue of these characters is one mm. just so funny. I mean, it's so like exoticizing queerness in a way where it's like they're appealing to straight men who aren't getting any and being like, look how yeah. naughty these ladies are. You know, sex is so <laughs> crazy. It's actually the part of the movie that is most unintentionally funny to me in retrospect. I love the dancing scene in the club, by the way. there's I love nothing more than sort of like movies from that era uh, showing like just like the... It's always the bobbing the head back and forth, yeah. dancing like that. Th- that scene is stuck in my brain forever. That scene and like Michelle Pfeiffer dancing is like Scarface. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. And then the the other side of it is I feel a lot of these movies feature this is really temperamental masculinity. So mm-hmm. Michael Douglas is flying off the handle constantly. His sex drive is out of control. You know, it, it's it's ruining his professionalism, and that's where. This genre, I think, also is probably the most problematic is that there is routinely a bit of a rapey vibe to how he approaches sex and, and, and his impulsiveness for it. That's the thing that kind of takes me out of the movie occasionally. But, of course, I guess Michael Douglas is just the king of this genre. Obviously, in Fatal Attraction, he gives a very similar performance. But, Ira, my question is... So you watch Body of Evidence with Madonna and I did. Willem Dafoe. So, I've got to tell uh, you, that might be her worst performance. It truly is. It is a <laughs> abysmal film. <laughs> yes. It's, and it's, by the way, her erotica era. So we were very like overexposed to her like how naughty I can be thing. And that, her breasts yeah. were everywhere during this era. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> breasts just pointy and ready to go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the nipple been freed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the cones came off. The cones came off. Yeah. This movie is awful. I don't know if her performance is worse than maybe in Shanghai Surprise, which is a tepid performance. That's something where she's just yeah. boring. Whereas this one, it's yeah. like. You, you have to hold your head at the quote-unquote sexiness of it. Yeah, there's nothing in the film that is actually sexy to me. There's a lot of reverse cowgirl going on in this film. <laughs> uh, Everyone's ideal, <laughs> ideal and most comfortable position. So you yeah. know, uh, it's, it just looks so uncomfortable, most of it. And it's wild how they keep pushing the sex in the movie because it's uh, – her sex scene with a man, uh, with an older man who dies during sex, um, is is filmed, and there's just scenes where like people are walking past the TV, and like the the tape is playing, so you're just seeing like Madonna fucking this man on <laughs> like the TV screen in the corner of the film constantly, and it's like there's nothing really sexy about it. And Lewis, when you brought up um, the temperamental man, you know, like Willem Dafoe is constantly angry in this film Mm -hmm. like when he goes to uh see her at the police station you know and tries to like work out the deal with the police and then they arrest her he like throws things off the table he's like you played me (laughs) the men in these movies are constantly throwing things and like hitting people and every like the initiation of the sex scenes are like you said like a little rapey it's like when he and madonna finally do have sex it's like they're throwing each other against walls. 
Uh, right. <laughs> ripping each other's clothes off. Behaving the way an undersexed person thinks crazy sex is. You know, mm-hmm. it, it feels very kind of made up. It's giving gone with the wind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, but it's interesting. The men in these movies remind me of another movie I just rewatched recently, uh, Carnal Knowledge from the 70s, if you, the Jack Nicholson character. Eventually, mm. he just becomes this just super chauvinistic creep who's like dismissive of all women. He puts together a slideshow of, uh, he doesn't call them cock tees, ball busters is what Ugh. he calls them. And eventually, <laughs> yeah. in, the final, in the final scene, he has like a prostitute played by Rita Moreno um, service him while calling him basically the greatest, and he becomes this just grotesque character obsessed with ego validation. But really, the male characters in all these movies are basically that. <laughs> some mm-hmm. version of that. and But they're also the hero of the movie. Is it good? Carnal Knowledge? At the time, Roger Ebert called it Mike Nichols' best film. Crazy <laughs> thing to say, but it, it is a great talking <laughs> movie because like there's, there's lots of great conversations in the movie, and I think Mike Nichols, he's sort of the master of that, right? People just sitting in a room and mm-hmm. hashing it out, and like there's strong emotions, but they feel relatable ultimately. Mm-hmm. And, and Margaret, fabulous for the uh, couple of very dramatic scenes she has. But anyway, Aida had never seen cruel intentions before how did this go okay here's my problem with this movie even though i loved it i loved it i felt so refreshed and rejuvenated and i haven't seen a film like this i think that again with us trying to like redefine what men look like in media so ryan Philippe plays a young man by the name of sebastian who does not say a single thing without an ulterior motive right he is constantly trying to manipulate reese witherspoon's character annette into loving him he's manipulating his stepsister who is also manipulating him with this strange incestual stepsister stepbrother sexual it's odd it's very odd and the majority of the sexually tense scenes in that movie are between sarah michelle geller and ryan Philippe, and that threw me for a little her yelling i want to fuck i love that film eat me sebastian I I will say the same thing that I said last time again when we did this is I understand why gays love a quotable. I get it now. I get it. <laughs> I have so many pull quotes from these movies. I'm going to try and integrate them into my real life. I will also say this movie feels like a prototype to Gossip Girl. I don't know if you guys understand. Mm. I mean, it is like up rich New York kids and their sexcapades that they shouldn't be having because they're far too young. Should be focusing on college. But the the Sarah Michelle Geller and Ryan Philippe brother sister sort of weird rapport was giving me Chuck and Blair, and it was difficult to separate that mm. as I was watching it. Also, what I really loved about this film was Reese and Ryan had this strange chemistry to me one that felt too good Mm -hmm. too accurate well then they get married after this film yes but so i thought that i was like oh they met on set they probably fell in love it just logically makes sense method sex scenes it's inevitable but then come to find out that ryan had been cast for this role of sebastian and he brought reese his girlfriend at the time to a dinner with the director roger cumble and he was insistent that she had to play annette and this was prior to, like, she did an audition. It was just, he had to convince her to do it. And I thought that was a really cool little fun fact about Cruel Intentions. That's how white women get roles. <laughs> just existing, popping up. <laughs> I think you also, when you talk about how everything he says is an ulterior motive, I think that's also kind of a signature component of these movies, whereas there's no mm-hmm. normal socializing going on. I mean, At nothing all. resembles two functional people in real life. Everything is wrapped up in a certain twistedness, in a certain um, nihilism, in wanting just the basest things from each other, whether it's validation or, you know, mm-hmm. id-based compulsions, things like that. So there's necessarily a bit of murkiness and 
real, I mean, grossness that you can jump into, but also it's gross. Mm -hmm. And sex is not romantic in it, you know? It's sort of like there's these manipulations and like like frank discussions of like when we do this we're going to have sex or like this etc but there's nothing sexy about it it's just sort of like a transaction yeah exactly right. or it's like a weird teaching moment i think i didn't realize this but i'd watched not another teen movie when i was much younger and there was a very disturbing scene of an older woman kissing a girl character and there was a string of spit that went on and you know at the time I thought it was just a front-facing normal movie and realizing now that it was a satirical movie using a scene from Cruel Intentions where right. Selma Blair and mm. Sarah Michelle Gellar kiss each other and there's this like infamous that kiss string <laughs> yeah yeah and that storyline is just a perverted in its way too and I, I think what I really liked about this film was that it answered to the really like gross monkey thoughts that I, I've had too about like, oh, I don't like that that girl mm. is dating my ex-boyfriend. I'm going to hurt her. <laughs> you know, the, the stuff that, mm. the things that you would never act on, but Sarah Michelle Geller's character does a whole plot, a whole revenge plot against this this young girl. Well, she's punished too. She wins. Selma Blair gets her comeuppance in the end. And also shout out Selma mm. Blair for being 27 at the time and playing like a 17-year-old. That is the definitive MTV Movie Award for Best Kiss Best Kiss, win. And I, yeah. Which, by the way, yes. I mean, I haven't fully investigated that award, but there are some problematic moments in that award's history. Oh. Jeremy Irons and Dominique Swain were nominated for Lolita. Guys, gross. Yeah, that's Who disgusting. Did, yeah. But then also Sarah Michelle Gellar, and this <laughs> speaks to like how much Hollywood has changed, but she accepted that award and was like, thanks to the directors and people working on it for being the sick perverts that they are. And like this, we would have never, we would have never at this time and age been able to to laud them for that behavior. Can we investigate Best Kiss winners at the MTV Movie Awards? Please. Uh, the first one in 92 was Anna Chlumsky and Macaulay Culkin and My Girl. Okay. Unacceptable. Boring. Moving they, right along. <laughs> they were up against Angelica Houston and Royal Julia in The Addams Family, Annette Bening and Warren Beatty in Bugsy, Juliette Lewis and Robert De Niro and Kate Fear and Priscilla Presley and Leslie Nielsen in The Naked Gun Two and a Half. Were there no kisses this year? Okay, well, first of all, let's just say the Kate Fear kiss, that is dark also. What a crazy nominee. <laughs> but like Raul Julia and Angelica Houston, that would have been a pretty good win. I mean, that's like a comedy kiss with some actual sensuality in it. Perfect casting, as we all mm-hmm. know, the Addams Family movies. If there was a Nobel Prize in casting, it would go to those. Mm-hmm. 97, Will Smith and Vivica A. Fox won for Independence Day. Okay. Which is wild when you see the kisses that it's up against. Gita Gershon and Jennifer Tilly in Bound. They beat Claire Danes and Leo in Romeo and Juliet. I'm sorry. I just uh, need to stop Pierce- and say I fucking love the 90s. My God. When we cared about the movie Bound. Oh, bring me back. Bring me back. They beat Kira Cedric and John Travolta in Phenomenon. I forgot that we made Kira Cedric kiss John Travolta. No. That's from the era when like John Travolta would be on Oprah all the time and he was like a bankable movie star again. Anyway, mm. who would want to revisit that kiss? Not me. Uh, who else? Jason Biggs and Sean William Scott won for their kiss in American Pie 2. Where we all yelled, ew! Yeah. <laughs> you know, the other definitive one for me is the 2003 win for Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst. That's a kiss. Well, that was acrobatics as well. So that's yeah, just that like... Yeah, upside you know. down kiss. Okay? <laughs> Girl, changed everything. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was this entire category not like driven off the rails by the Twilight franchise? It was. It was. Yes. The decline of this entire genre, you can chart through this. Yeah. Oh, you're mm-hmm. 2009 to 2012 is consistent Twilight wins. Chris Stewart and Robert Pattinson 
one for four consecutive years for those Boo. goddamn movies. Unacceptable. Best kiss my ass. <laughs> the films that they were up against too for these four years, like Angelina Jolie and James McAvoy in Wanted, mm. James Franco and Sean Penn in Milk. They beat Vanessa Hudgens and Zac Efron in High School Musical. Damn. This is giving wild. I have varied thoughts about all of those. But like Angelina Jolie and James McAvoy, that's a little bit closer to something I would want to reward in this way because she's a very mysterious person in the movie and he's got his mysterious – isn't he like blazing hot in that movie too? Anyway. Yeah. Wanted, very underrated Angelina Jolie film. Bullets that curve. Right. Ugh. And you get to see a scene of her like working a huge-ass loom. I love a loom in a film. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's also, isn't Morgan Freeman like crossing his arms and walking around a lot in that one, too? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I want Lewis to do reductionist versions of every film he's ever seen. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> Best arm folding, Morgan Freeman, 24 years in a row. My last thought about Basic Instinct, by the way, to get back to maybe the definitive erotic thriller. The problem is, as I was watching it, the mystery feels really good. And then you realize, and I know I've said this about the movie Scream 4 before, it can only be... It's like a yes or no ending, and it's not interesting either way. You know whatever the ending is, it's not that fascinating. And mm-hmm. in addition to being an erotic thriller, it's a mystery that doesn't lead up to anything. So that's where the movie is a failure. Mm. You always find a way to drag Scream 4, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to hurt you. You know, I wanted to ask you guys this because I think that you saw these movies at like formative times in your sexual, your sexual careers. <laughs> but... Um, Everything I was reading about Cruel Intentions said that it really changed people in the 90s and how they viewed sex in themselves if they'd seen it. Like it was it was giving voice to a generation of repressed sexual teenagers. Do you feel like these movies at the time changed, formulated, did anything to the way you saw yourself and viewed sex? I think it's fair to say. Well, you, I was so not allowed to see movies like this. I came from a very uh, Christian household at the time. Luckily, that devolved. <laughs> um, but... I think it did heighten what I thought you got out of sex that, you know, in addition to it, you know, fulfilling a biological need, it was this climactic moment, LOL, in just the drama of your life always, which is, I guess, true on occasion, but Mm -hmm. not really. I mean, like, it mystified sex. I I agree with that. Okay. Mm, Yeah. You know, well, if Cruel Intentions taught me anything, it did tell me to keep your cocaine in a cross. (laughs) (laughs) Which you live by by the Hanging from your neck. Yeah. Shockingly, there's not an Aesop (laughs) fable with that moral. I can't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think the the turtle won? Uh, it wasn't eating them Tootsie Roll Pops. Um, I would say that I, you know, being a young, burgeoning gay child, you know, I was always drawn to, like, those Sarah Michelle Gellar characters in those films, you know? It's sort of like the the woman who, you know, gets punished at the end for being, you know, bold and, like, uh, vibrant, like, and the most interesting character in the film, but you're drawn to them, you know? And I feel like you find some sort of, like, connection with those types of characters. So yeah. maybe that's the reason, you know, I love scheming. Could that be. makes a lot of sense. Well, you it love does. a soap, yeah. Mm-hmm. True, true. And it, I think, too, like, Sarah, her character has to present a certain way to the world so that she can maintain a sense of decorum, but then you find out she's lewd and disgusting, and, you know, that's what being gay is, so. <laughs> <laughs> the Sarah Michelle Geller performance, and also Sharon Stone, it's like this nexus of overacting and also 
legitimate angst. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of Mm -hmm. like this good, bad continuum thing where it's never all the way good or all the way unwatchable. Like, it's just what melodrama is. Like, sort of relatable and sort of crazy at all times. Yeah. Wow. Look at you half giving a compliment to the queen. (laughs) (laughs) That's I'm rising like the tides. Aida, do you agree that this is a two out of four star movie as Lewis described it? I would give it a three for the novelty of it and for the mock necks. I love the aesthetic of it. It was like late nineties. The car that he was driving, Sebastian was driving the turtlenecks, all the black, the chandeliers. The earth tones. It was everything mm. I wanted. Yeah, he's got the Timberlake ringlets in that too, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. He's so fine in that movie. <laughs> Look at Aida with some taste. Finally, right? <laughs> Watch a sexy movie. Sorry. Goodbye, OnlyFans. <laughs> <laughs> we got to have the erotic thrillers come back now that there's no OnlyFans. Let's get some OnlyFans performers into some erotic thrillers. You know, the way they just plop influencers into films now, um, like Addison Rae and shit. Ugh. Why don't we take Cole Connor and put him in an erotic thriller? Mm. I mean, well, <laughs> a- as Grace Helbig once said, the definition of talent is changing. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if you should cross those wires, but all right. <laughs> all right, well, we're back. Keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. As usual, it is Keep It. Aida, you've been gone for a minute, and now you're back with the jump off. So, <laughs> Ooh, La-, La-, La Bella Mafia. Yeah, here. genuinely. I was living in so much peace. I had no time to check what the world was doing. And the second I opened up the internet, my brothers and sisters are falling from 50-foot crates that they've created, like Oof. these shitty Olympic courses <laughs> they have strung together from milk crates. First of all, where are niggas getting milk crates from? Where? Where? I want to know the inception of this trend so bad. Let me start my keep it. My keep it goes to the crate challenge. I'm sure if you've been online... Which I should I should preface this with I'm irritated, but I'm entertained. I'm mostly entertained. I'm very much so irritated, though. I'm sure you guys have seen the videos that are taking the Internet by storm, um, where usually my black brothers and sisters are creating these obstacle courses in fields. I don't know where they're finding fields either. There's so many questions I have. <laughs> I didn't know black people had this much land. Maybe we all got that 40 <laughs> acres and a mule. <laughs> and the mule came carrying so many blue and black crates. I think so here's essentially what's going on. Someone, um let's call him the obstacle course creator. He takes all the crates and he stacks them up one and it might be a woman, let me not assume, or a, a, or a dangerous non-binary person who takes all the crates and they build like a tower and you walk up them like stairs. And then once you get to the top, you have to descend these exact same. It's like a mirrored thing. So just imagine like a pyramid of these crates. In my mind, watching it at first, I was like, this is going to be very simple. The crates lock into each other. They're ergonomical to one another. It's their design. They don't. They don't. They're not built to be stacked. They're not built. So by the time you get to the middle one, which is usually the highest one, it's wobbling. Okay. It looks like a half done game of Jenga. It's not a safe place for anyone to be up, but they're doing it. My black brothers and sisters are coming out in droves. Okay. To watch. I've seen women in heels doing the milk crate challenge. What is going on? I saw a nigga roll a blunt. 
first of all, it was inspiring. <laughs> it was inspiring. I've been thinking about that man every day since I saw him do it. Ooh, we got to find him. But he just <laughs> makes it all the way to the top, rolls the blunt, and then by the time he gets to the end, he sparks it. And I've just never seen black joy the way the people around him started screaming. It's fucking stupid is what it is, though. People are getting hurt. People are getting extremely hurt. I saw a boy break both knees in a video oh, the other knees. day. Knees. <laughs> both uh. knees. And people are tearing ligaments. People are falling directly on their heads. Please stop before we have a fatality because somebody about to die. And as we have talked about, because I don't know if you guys remember, we are totally in a pandemic. There are no hospital beds for y'all. There is no place yes. to find healing. Okay. The unvaccinated masses have stolen our hospital beds. Can you imagine like being unvaccinated and then also um, breaking your bones <laughs> from a milk crate? You go to a hospital, you go die. I just like going to your insurance policy and trying to find crate challenge. Like, please. By the way, can we just go back to the year of about 1990? If you had told me then that the most prophetic TV show in existence was America's Funniest Home Videos. Yes. I would have been violently angry. Mm -hmm. We are living in a time where that is almost 100% of the content we consume. Someone falling and hitting their crotch on a crate. <laughs> and that's a phenomenon to us. Like, we sort of edged into this with the erotic thriller stuff, but we're, this is dystopian territory. I mean, it worries me. This is me. bad. Yeah. This is bad. Get spotters. So much of this could be solved if y'all would just hold your hands up and catch your friend when they inevitably fall. Um, but it's also good to know stupidity as an art isn't dead because I love the cinnamon challenge. Remember that? The Tide Pod challenge. Like, every oh, yes. few years. Glozell's get... finest moment. Yes. Mm. I am on Kawanga and Lickersham. <laughs> I... <laughs> yes. Yes. That, see, it's just, you know. Oh, and another thing. Most of these videos are happening on HBCU campuses and quads and rec centers. They're supposed to be bastions of black intellect, okay? What is going on? <laughs> what is going on? Well, Lewis. Anyway, Lewis, yeah. What's your keep it this week? You know, accidentally... My Keep It counts as a continuation of the erotic thriller conversation. My Keep It is to the film Annette, starring Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. Starring, you're mm. using loosely. <laughs> yes. These, okay. Uh, <laughs> My favorite 9-11 truther. That is among the crazier best actress-related media moments in history, unfortunately. <laughs> I, it, it's hard to describe what this movie is about because it's barely a linear narrative, but it's a very operatic film about a weirdo stand-up comedian. I say this because these are really heightened, strange, kind of Cronenbergian stand-up moments. Mm -hmm. And his opera singer wife, and it's about their life together that eventually ends up involving murder, and there's a child that's played by a puppet. Okay, this movie proves to me that because there's two great performances in it, that doesn't mean the movie is compelling. This is a movie that was a sensation at Cannes, and by that I mean people stood up and applauded for 20 minutes, and we, of course, know that means maybe nothing. We're just excited that Adam Driver's there, Marion Cotillard is there, and we're not mad at them. So we're going to applaud their performance and hope they come back again. But this movie, to me, is pretentious junk. I don't know. I was expecting to love it because of all the can buildup. But as I learned before, movies that have gotten long applauses like that, like Mud with Matthew McConaughey that got 18 minutes of applause at the time, fine movie. I, I don't care. I don't need to ever see it again. Who's clapping that long for anything? I know. Even birth. <laughs> Our uh, friend Kyle Buchanan did a breakdown of how this level of applause is even possible because they'll have a camera panning through the audience. And so people clap individually at the director, the star, whom, mm. whomever else is there, the celebrity screenwriter, whatever. 
anyway, it's sort of the epitome of a film festival movie and that it's more strange than good and you're mostly just compelled by how baffled you are throughout the movie. And I never got to the point where I just got it. And I know that sounds like a Luddite kind of thing to say, <laughs> uh, a Philistine thing to say, <laughs> but I just never got to the great part. And I love Marion Cotillard, maybe my favorite working actress when she does work. Mm. My question is the puppet in this film um, related to Annabelle? <laughs> you know what? I haven't checked the Ancestry.com on that, but I'm going okay. to know. Yeah. Okay. You know, I just thought Annabelle prequel, I don't know. You know, they're churning those movies out. Right. Yeah. Punch and Judy. <laughs> Can you speak to, are there moments where Adam Driver attempts comedy? Yes. But oh. it's also very bleak. So it's never just straight ahead. Like he's not. He's not trying to be whatever. Adjust. The Smothers Brothers yeah. or Milton Berle or something, yes. Because we all are, you know, trying to I, be the <laughs> These contemporary <laughs> references that we all know. Okay, yes. I feel like my least favorite genre of film is whenever you search the film's title and the first article that comes up is a Vulture article that says, let's talk about the ending of blank. <laughs> Anytime Vulture needs to talk about the ending of a film, I don't want to see it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you know the discussion's a little annoying and overwrought and we've already put too much thought in it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, guess I won't be seeing Annette yeah. unless it's nominated for things, and then I'll probably see it. I know. Oh, yeah, right? I will have no choice but to see it, actually. No. Do you think there'll be nominations from Annette? No, it's too much of an eye roll. Wow. Speaking of rolling my eyes, my keep it this week goes to Tiffany & Co. and their About Love campaign featuring Jay-Z and Beyonce. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, you mean Beyonce yes. and Busky Nut? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I hope you workshop that for a long time, Aida. Been thinking about it for <laughs> days. <laughs> they were announced as the stars of Tiffany and Co's uh, About Love and Campaign, and it has photos of them with a Basquiat um, painting that has been basically not seen since the 90s. Um, and it's a Basquiat painting that has like the Tiffany like light blue background, you know, that blue box that um, we've been clamoring for since Audrey Hepburn was having breakfast there or whatever. <laughs> um, it's called Equals Pie and it's a 1982 painting from Basquiat. Um, it was first sold, like tried to sell it at an auction like after his death. And um, there's a lot of controversy surrounding this. One... I want to address the fact that Tiffany like keeps trying to um, push the narrative that Basquiat painted this as like an homage to Tiffany's. Mm. It's like we can't confirm this, but the color is so similar, bitch. Unless he added no, that's you. That's cerulean. <laughs> <laughs> right. The, the the only connection is that there's a lightish blue. What, what would you call that? Is that te- I know I, I, we call it Tiffany blue or something, but you know, related to teal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I personally think it's a stretch. I don't think it's baby blue enough to even be Tiffany's, but they're grasping for anything. Mm-hmm. Let them have it. Yeah, and so the real controversy here uh, is that um, Beyonce and Jay-Z are in front of this painting that hasn't, you know, um, been seen since, like, Basquiat died. And um, conversations are cropping up about black wealth flaunting it and also um the fact that paintings by artists like Basquiat are just sold to like different millionaires uh and like kept in their homes and then we never see them mm-hmm. a lot of this conversation is giving uh I just discovered what the art world is <laughs> <laughs> velvet buzzsaw wow yeah rich people own art that you don't see publicly because you're not in their homes 
I'm shocked. Right. Most of the time, they don't even see publicly because it's in a storage unit and it's just an investment piece for them. Listen, there's a conversation to be had about, you know, um, sharing art with the world, et cetera. But, you know, like, artists make money from selling their paintings. So I don't know what we're doing here, you know? Like, there could maybe be some sort of time limit, you know? Like, if that artist dies, if they become, like, an insanely popular um, artist like Basquiat, maybe, you know, there should be stipulations for... Um, um, showing that artwork elsewhere or loaning it to museums more often. But it's also like, if you bought some shit in the 90s, like, why do I need to give it to the public? Right. No, of course not. I'm appreciative of the fact that there's a new Basquiat narrative, and it's not just Madonna talking about how they once knew each other, because that's her whole thing now, bragging that she knew famous what people. What nigga like didn't Andy she Warhol. know? I know. That's what I mean. <laughs> what black man didn't Madonna shove her tongue down? Okay? She's still doing it. Uh, <laughs> Drake said a cease and desist. Uh, Madonna will never die, and in 50 yeah. years, she will be in a nursing home, walking around, dressed like a pimp, with a gold grill in her mouth, talking about... <laughs> I knew Drake once. <laughs> John Boyega grazed my hand, my frail little hand. <laughs> uh, it's also um, part owned by LVMH, which, as we know, is um, the Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy. Uh, it's a French holding, multinational corporation, conglomerate, etc. Uh, they have a Louis Vuitton like institute in Paris, um, where there are actually a lot of um, Basquiat's on display. Um, so I feel like this one will be displayed at some point. I love that exhibit. Mm. Yeah, I don't really have anything more to say than like I love going to Paris and seeing art. Oh, <laughs> I wow, can't Emily. believe it. I'm simply Thanks, stunned. Emily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this black wealth. <laughs> <laughs> this is my rude, my rude comment about Basquiat as an artist. Why are y'all dying to see the same scribbles that he gave you in every single canvas that he painted? Y'all are going to be fine if you don't see Ooh. this one. You're going to be okay. Right. Google the photo. Look at it. My actual argument against all of this is like people being really pressed about like this Basquiat being hidden and like them selling for millions. It's, um, you know what I would really love for anyone to do? Learn a different black artist. Exactly. There's, oh my God. Any. Any, any, find <laughs> some work by a modern black artist too. I could argue that Beyonce and Jay Z should do that too, um, because the obsession with you know that Jay Z has, you know, with like a Basquiat painting is like we get mm-hmm. it. You know, you want to show your wealth, but you also want to connect it to a black artist who's historical, you know, so it Mm -hmm. feels, you know, a bit better than being like a a Picasso, you know, it's like, oh no, it's like, it's like a rich nigga. Exactly. It's giving 16 year old who just took an art history class. Like when I see a black man with a a Basquiat crown tattoo, girl, I run for the hills. I run. run. That's the lifestyle you're committed to. You don't know anything else. Mm. Basquiat crown tattoos and um, walking around downtown in suits. Yeah, and like tabby <laughs> shoes, Margella shoes, and a hemp jacket. Like, what's going on? Okay, you don't have to come from Margella shoes. <laughs> I have a very good pair of Margella sneakers, okay? <laughs> I do want to say that something that has fallen out of the popular imagination recently that recently came back to the surface, I was at the gym and the song Ape Shit came on. Mm. That is an underrated number in their catalogs. It really holds up. That whole album everything is love it was a, yeah. it, i listened to yeah. it quite often it's beautiful friends banger Ugh. Mm-hmm. a snoop dogg reference yeah. on one of these tracks it's so good mm, i guess the final lesson of my keep it is uh learn some more black artists mm-hmm. sure that's it and stop lying tiffany's exactly right <laughs> stop <laughs> lying <laughs> 
Basquiat wasn't thinking about you. <laughs> It'd be pretty weird if he was, in fact. Also, the way she was wearing that necklace down her the line of her back, like right on her spine, I was like, okay, new mode of jewelry. I'm down. I really did appreciate that. Can we get a real definitive Basquiat film, by the way? Like, and actually teach the girls something about him? Because that 96 movie with Jeffrey Wright, David Bowie is... Yeah. Whew. Yeah, we don't need that, no. <laughs> Ooh, but who would play a modern Basquiat? Don't say Lakeith, it's too... Well, well, you know, famously, I'm, I hear that Basquiat also didn't clean under his fingernails. So. Stop! <laughs> he was a guest here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we drag God, our guests all the time. <laughs> we do. To hell and back. To hell and back. No, he'd be amazing, honestly. He'd be good at it. Yeah, he'd be great. He might be the only one equipped to do it. I don't know. Put some faux locks on that snowfall boy. <laughs> we might be able to get something from him. <laughs> Who'd play Warhol in it? What about Ansel Elgort? Oh, we're mad at him, aren't we? Hmm. No, but it, it would need Fuck. to be some sort of like daffy Harry Styles. legend. No, somebody older. How about like David Hyde Pierce? David Hyde Pierce. That's my, that's okay. my pick. Mm. Yeah. Why not a Kieran Culkin? That's a little young, I think. You think? Mm. Bring back Ryan Gosling. Oh, wow. You know who would want to do it? Mr. Jake Gyllenhaal, who, who never turns down a, a cookie oh. part now. Oh, that would be perfect, <laughs> yeah. actually. You know what? He canceled himself out by doing Velvet Buzzsaw. I know. I feel the same <laughs> way. I hated that movie. And another one of those Tony Collette performances where I'm like, why did you pick Tony Collette for this? She can do like 70 things and you picked one of the five things she can't do. All right. I'm looking at you. Knives out. Yeah. And of course, Madonna will play herself. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just her on screen insisting she is friends with them. Yes. <laughs> All right. Shout out to uh, Journey Smollett for joining us this week. This has been Keep It. We'll see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston. And our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is me, Ira Madison III. Our editor is Bill Lance. And Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. And hey, stay safe out there. When Tillamook ice cream beckons you to the freezer aisle, which irresistibly creamy flavor do you choose? While you're thinking, try not to fuck up the glass. Tillamook ice cream. Extraordinary dairy.